us on Facebook Live, and uh, we appreciate you worshiping with us. Hey, it's time for Kids Church, and so fifth grade and under, you guys are dismissed. I know the Shoulders family is waiting for you, and uh, they've got a great time planned for you. Hey, today we're in part five. <coughs> Excuse me. We're in part five of our series that we've been in for the last few weeks, the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, and again, this series is really just about working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to end in Mark 16, which is, of course, the resurrection. And so uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. And in chapter 7, there's an, there's an interesting incident between Jesus and the Pharisees that, that takes place. And that's where we're going to camp out at today. And we're going to look through some of that. And I'm just going to preface this whole message by saying this. We're going to talk today about tradition. And I know immediately when we say that, some people just kind of get, you know, their, their bodies just kind of contract and they're already on the edge of their seat and like, I'm not going to like anything he's about to say. And that's okay. Okay? I'm just going to tell you, that's okay. Because I'm going to tell you right now that tradition's not necessarily bad. And we're going to unpack that. According to the dictionary, tradition is simply this. It's the handing down of information or beliefs and customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another generation without written instruction. So let's just get all the cards out on the table. We all have traditions, don't we? Right? We all have traditions. Uh, for example, here's a tradition. When, and, and this is going to be a family tradition. What day should Christmas presents be opened? Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Some people say both, like right whenever there's a Christmas present to be opened. But, but everybody has a, has a tradition. Your, your preference for what day you open Christmas presents is probably based on what your family did when you were growing up. Here's another one that we celebrate as, a, as an entire world. Hard to believe that there's a lot of traditions that the entire world celebrates, but for the most part, I think, this past, uh, I think, Thursday, March the 17th, that was Thursday, right? What color did everybody, was everybody supposed to wear? Green, because it was St. Patrick's Day, and the tradition is on St. Patrick's Day, you wear green or you get pinched, right? Like, that's the deal. I'd say, if you pinch me, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Irish. It's like, I don't have to participate, right? So don't pinch me. But, but right, that's a tradition that everybody participates in. So let's look at a couple of verses here in Mark chapter 7, and we're going to see what the Pharisees thought about tradition. We start at, at uh, verse 1. So now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They didn't, clean their, they didn't wash their hands before they got ready to eat. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders... And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? In other words, why don't they wash their hands before they eat? And he said to them, this being Jesus, What did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do not worship, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. Here's, here's what we need to understand right off the bat about this whole passage of scripture. That the Pharisees, 
These religious leaders, the, the, the religious elite of their day, they believed that traditions were more than just a good idea, more than just a treasured belief. They believed that their traditions were on par with, that they were equal with, with Scripture, that they had the same authority, that they carried the same weight. They believed that God had given both the written Torah, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the law. He, they believed that God had given both the written and the oral Torah. That's the traditions of the elders. The, the oral Torah, it was divided into six sections. It, it contained laws and traditions about agriculture, about festivals, about women, about, about civil and criminal law, about uh, holy things, about rituals and purity. But the oral Torah, it was just that. It was oral. Until about 200 AD when a, when a rabbi came by and he codified it in, in what's now known as the Mishnah. But, but during the time of Jesus... Being a Pharisee, one of the requirements to be a Pharisee was that you had to memorize all of these oral traditions. You had to memorize all of these laws that weren't written down anywhere. They were just passed on from one generation to the next. And you had to know them verbatim. And it was your job to make sure that the next generation understood all of these traditions. And these traditions, they carried just as much authority as the written law. And so the Pharisees, they, they're going to make an accusation against Jesus. And this is kind of a pattern we see throughout the New Testament. They're going to accuse Jesus of something. Jesus is going to teach partly in a parable a lot of times. And, and then he's going to explain the parables later to the disciples because they're going to say, hey, what, what did you mean by all of that? But here's the accusation that, that the Pharisees level against Jesus. It's found in verse 5. It says, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? That's the charge against Jesus and his group. Your disciples, they don't follow the traditions of, of us. They don't follow our traditions. So why do you let them do that? Now, here's what's kind of funny to me. Is that this whole issue, this, this accusation, what's it begin over? What's at the, at the, at the root of this? It's hand washing, right? The, the disciples, they, they went and they ate before they washed their hands. And so it's a hand washing issue. And we've made a lot to do about hand washing over the last couple of years, and for good reason, right? I mean, but when you read about this in the New Testament, it didn't have anything to do with hygiene. You know, it wasn't until about the Civil War that people started equating dirty hands with germs. This wasn't about hygiene at all. This was simply about a ritual. See, the Pharisees, this was a symbolic ritual that demonstrated adherence to the oral Torah, to the oral law, to the traditions. They believed that defilement occurred when, when a Jew, knowingly or unknowingly, came in contact with something that they deemed unclean. And so this ritual cleansing began, as, as most traditions do, with a worthy motive. There wasn't anything bad about what, what they were asking the disciples to do. Hey, we think you've touched something unclean, so we want you to clean, cleanse yourself. We want you to purify yourself before you become before God. That's not a bad thing, is it? Right? I mean, nobody, I think, would argue that. But this ritual itself, it soon grew increasingly complex. You know, they even had elaborate discussions about the placement of your fingers as the water ran over it. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, really, how stupid is that? Your fingers weren't clean if they weren't in a certain position when the water ran over it. That, that's what this grew into. That's what this tradition had grown into. And so in the passage that we just read and what we're going to focus on this morning, Jesus and his disciples are attacked for failing to observe this tradition in verse 8 we see the problem Jesus says you set aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions 
And what follows are, are examples of the Pharisees, their willingness to elevate tradition over truth. And the reason that we're looking at this passage of Scripture in the first place, the reason we're going to talk about this today, is because we all have our own sacred traditions. And there's nothing wrong with having traditions. But I'll say this, we're usually not real wild about giving up those traditions or modifying those traditions, are we? J.I. Packer said it this way, he said, The question then is not whether we have, have traditions, but whether our traditions conflict with the only absolute standard on these matters, Holy Scripture. Of course, not everything to do with tradition is bad. We would be foolish to say that. Tradition, tradition is, there's a lot of good things about tradition. It gives us our identity. It, it tells us who we are. Tradition, it highlights our roots. It tells us where we've been. It externalizes our mindset. It, it allows us to demonstrate what we believe. Tradition set boundaries for our lifestyle by telling us how to behave. So if tradition does all of that good stuff, then what's wrong with tradition? Well, as I've said, hopefully plenty of times by now, nothing is wrong with tradition. It's just that there are some inherent problems that come with traditions. And there are four important answers that we're going to see from Jesus' response to the Pharisees about what traditions can produce. And the first one is this, is that traditions can, provide, can foster an external or a false religion. Look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 7. He replied, this is Jesus saying, speaking, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. I think this is the first time in Scripture where we see Jesus call the Pharisees hypocrites. It's not going to be the last time, but I believe this is the first time. Which really means he's just saying, you're an actor playing a part. You are, you are pretending to be religious. You are pretending to be godly. You are just playing the part. But you're not really any of those things. Warren Wiersbe writes this. He said, Jesus made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that true holiness is a matter of inward affection and attitude, not just outward of actions and associations. The pious Pharisees thought they were holy because they obeyed the law and avoided external defilement. Jesus taught that a person who obeys the law externally can still break the law in his heart and that external defilement has little connection with the condition of the inner person. So the conflict here is, is not just uh, uh, about defilement. It's between God's truth and man's tradition. But it's also about two divergent views of sin and holiness. This confrontation wasn't an incidental skirmish. It got to the very heart of people's faith, of true religious faith. You see, traditions have tremendous power over us. And over time, they just come to seem right to us. They gain a tight grip on our emotions, and so we cling to them. We become blind to the hold that they have on us. They govern our behavior, and over time, it feels like doctrine. In the Catholic Church, they have a word for that. It's called dogma. We, we like traditions, and, and they work for us because we can keep them. In fact, they're easier to obey than God's Word. They can be kept by our own diligence without ever having to actually have a relationship with God. In, in his book, The Present Future, Reggie McNeil writes this, and I would highly recommend this book. He writes that you and I fight, what you and I fight to defend is really church culture, not biblical Christianity. This is what he says. He says, the imminent demise under discussion is the collapse of the unique culture in North America that has come to be called church. This church culture has become confused with biblical Christianity, both inside the church and out. 
In reality, the church culture in North America is a vestige of the original movement and institutional expression of religion that is in part a civil religion and in part a club where religious people can hang out with other people whose politics, worldview, and lifestyle matches theirs. That stings a little bit. I mean, that kind of smacks you right in the face, doesn't it? Anytime we major on external, external acts instead of internal attitudes, we're moving the church toward irrelevance and eventually death. And worse, when we major on externals, we have moved away from the message of Jesus. Traditions aren't bad, but they certainly can allow us to, to foster an external, and even worse, a false sense of religion. The second thing that traditions might lead us to is that it can supersede Scripture. Look at verses 9 through 13. And he said to them, Jesus saying this, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Korban was a, a, Virgil pledge, a, a, ver, a verbal pledge of a future offering. After such an offering was pledged, it couldn't be given to, to anybody else. Although it could be conveniently used for self. It, it was kind of like modern day estate planning. When, when I die, this offering goes to the temple. But it can't be used to help any family members. And that's really not the point of, of this anyway. The main point of this is that the tradition that the, these Pharisees, these, these people had handed down, it actually superseded a biblical command. The, the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and his 95 Thesis, if you've ever studied church history, you know about this. The, the whole point of him doing nailing 95 Thesis to the, to the door at, Witten, at the Wittenberg Church, it was all about the church finding her authority in Scripture alone, which, which would ultimately be called uh, sola scriptura. In Catholicism, the church traditions were, and in many cases still are, on equal authority with, with the Bible. It's what we just talked about a minute ago with their, their dogma. And I'll say this, some Protestants, we kind of like to look down our nose at the Catholics for this reason. All while we give lip service to the idea of sola scriptura. In reality, we have our own traditions that, that have every bit as much of influence over us, more so than the Bible does often. They just aren't as well defined as the Catholic tradition. You know this, I seldom ever hear people uh, get up and leave a church, this church or any other church, over genuine doctrinal issues. I, very rarely does anybody ever say, hey, I'm leaving because this church doesn't believe this and this is in the scripture and you all are getting this wrong. In fact, I'll say I've never had that conversation with anybody. And I don't know many preachers that have. But even when, when, when a person does come and says, hey, they're leaving, and it's couched as a doctrinal issue, it's usually a cultural bias that has been supported by proof texting. In fact, an outsider could look at our churches, at our church practices, and argue that we're more dependent on tradition than we are the Bible in most areas. Let me give you a couple examples. For example, the Bible does not give a specific time in which we're to, to gather together on Sundays, does it? Most churches in North America think of prime time as what? Somewhere between 10 and 11 o'clock, right? That's when most churches gather together on Sunday morning. Is that a bad thing? No. But you know why? It's tradition. It's also a schedule that was dictated by dairy cattle. 
Our, our ancestors had cows to milk. And, and so the farmers had chores to do. And so, so you scheduled church late enough that they could milk their cows and get all their farm chores done and still get everybody to church in the morning. What about Sunday school? Sunday school is not a bad thing, is it? There's nobody that could ever argue that Sunday school was a bad thing. But, but did you know that Sunday school, when it started just a little over 200 years ago, it was started as a means of teaching illiterate children to read and in the process to share the gospel with them. That's why it was called Sunday school. Uh, if, if you read the literature of that day, though, Sunday school was, was, was not uh, a popular thing. It was highly criticized by the religious leaders of, of that day. But that eventually changed over time until most of us could not ever have ever envisioned a church without Sunday school. We could never have envisioned going to, to church on a Sunday morning where we didn't have some sort of Sunday school. Uh, on the other hand, though, Scripture puts the primary responsibility for a child's spiritual development on who? On the parent, not on the family of faith, not on the church. The problem, though, for several generations now, and it continues, is that, that parents have frequently abdicated their responsibility to spiritually develop their children to the church. And when they give the church just an hour or two on, on a week, then they complain that the church didn't do enough because their, their kid has walked away from faith. Dawson McAllister is a prominent youth communicator. He's done research that says that 90% of high school students in today's youth groups will not be in church by the time they are sophomores in college. The number one reason kids abandon their faith and inconsistency between the message of the gospel and the behavior in the home that they grew up in. But, but Sunday school is a tradition, right? we got to have it. Again, not a bad thing, right? Not a bad thing. What about the invitation and the altar call that we have every Sunday? You know, every Sunday I, I'll finish the message, I'll pray, and I'll walk down front and we'll sing and, and it's a chance to respond to the gospel. It's a chance to respond to the message. Not a bad thing, right? Could, could we ever say that giving somebody an opportunity to respond to the gospel is a bad thing? Of course not. But you know, the, the altar call or the invitation is only about 200 years old. It was first started by a man named Albert Finney, who was a, an evangelist. But for many conservative churches, it has become a powerful, powerful symbol of something. I don't even know what I would say, but, but I, I, I tell you this, every Sunday I've got my spot that I'm going to stand, right? Because that's what's expected. And, and I'm going to say, again, not anything wrong with that. Not anything at all wrong with that. What, what about the order of our services? Nowhere in Scripture does it specifically say how a worship service is to be conducted. All it, all it says is that all things be done in order, right? And edifying the body. But every time there's a change in the worship order... We get a little upset, don't we? If, we? if we move communion from the middle of the service to the end of the service or to the beginning of the service, or we sing one song instead of three songs, or we sing you know, four songs instead of three songs, there, there's this tension because it's not what we expect. It's not what we're used to. But there's no, thus saith the Lord, on how many songs we're to sing or when we're supposed to take communion. It's just that we do it in decent order. Similarly, there are no specific preaching styles mentioned in, in Scripture, but everybody has their favorite, don't they? That's okay. Preaching has, has changed dramatically from generation to generation. In fact, Jesus' style of preaching today would probably come under criticism by most conservative evangelicals for not having enough meat in, in his sermons. You know why? Because Jesus told a lot of stories. He, he told a lot of agricultural stories, and so people today in today's world, they say he, he's not digging deep enough. You know, a few uh, 
30, 40, 50 years ago, it, you know, it was expected that you hadn't been to church and heard a preacher unless he screamed and yelled at you and, and told you you were all going to hell by the end of the service, right? That, that was just what was expected. That was the gener- you know, that was just that style of preaching that day. And it changes from, from generation to generation. And again, nothing necessarily wrong with that. When hymns first began being sung in the church, there was, check this out, there was severe disapproval. Severe disapproval when hymns were first introduced. Before that time, the church had sung the psalms, usually in Latin. And now these, quote-unquote, secular songs were being introduced and people didn't like it. For example, the words, To a mighty fortress is our God, one of the great hymns of all time, written by Martin Luther, was, was highly criticized. You know why? Because the tune was a popular drinking song from the bars in Germany. Now, 400 years later, the church has returned to singing the psalms set to music, and people react strongly. The, the, the claims are that they're, they're lightweight. They're 7-11 songs. You know, we sing the same seven words 11 times. They're insignificant, insignificant, not nearly as meaty as the hymns, even though in many cases the lyrics are straight out of the Bible. How about this one? And this is, uh, get, people are going to tense when I say this one. How about the, the image of the cross, the symbol of the cross? Now, I'm going to tell you, there's not a thing in the world wrong with the cross. Did you know in this auditorium, there's not a spot that you can't sit where a cross can't be seen? In fact, it was designed that way. And, and I, I, think that's, I think that's so interesting and fantastic. But there are three crosses back here. And you can see one of those from anywhere in this auditorium. But did you know there's no archaeological evidence that has ever found the cross used as a symbol of the Christian faith until the last 400 years after the resurrection? Until 400 years after the resurrection, Constantine made it popular. The Roman Emperor made it popular by putting the, the cross on the shields of his soldiers as an emblem of good luck. But if a church should dare not use a cross prominently in its architecture, I mean, people, some people would have a stroke over that. Where in the Bible are we commanded to use the cross in our signs or in our letterhead or even in our architecture? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But I'll say this, and you can call me blasphemous if, if you must, but I don't even think the cross is the best sign for our faith. The problem is that an empty tomb doesn't make a real nice piece of jewelry. But isn't the empty tomb a much better symbol of our faith than a cross? You know, when it, in, in Roman days, if you were to put a cross on a chain, people would have thought you were an executioner. That's what they would have thought. They would have thought you were an executioner because the cross was a symbol of death. But the empty tomb, that's a symbol of life. And Christianity, Jesus, is all about life. You've heard me say this before. The the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't come to make people good. He came to bring people back to life. And that's what the empty tomb is about. And again, not a bad thing, right? None of these things that I've just talked about are bad things. And none of them would ever be a problem if we held our traditions personally and just said, you know, I like them. You know what happens, though, is too often we set ourselves up as an authority of what is spiritual and what is not. And we demand that everyone follow our traditions. And the first casualty of this attitude is relationships. When we value our traditions over our relationships and we're willing to break the ties of family, of, of the family of faith, when we don't get our way, the first casualty is always relationships. That's what verses 11 and 12 are all about. You can't neglect relationships based on, uh, on the basis of spiritual traditions. And so traditions 
are, are again, not a bad thing, but they can, external foster, or they can foster external or false sense of religion. And they can often supersede Scripture. They can also twist theological truth. Jesus makes this pretty clear in verses 14 and 15. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Jesus says, listen and understand. This is probably pretty important, so, so let's listen and understand this. He says, nothing outside of man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And then you jump down to verses 21 through 23. He says, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. He says, all of these evils come from inside of man. And make a man unclean. This whole discussion starts with food. But then it moves into a list of, of serious conditions. In, in the first books of the Old Testament, God gave some very strict guidelines about what foods were kosher. And the advantage of having a strict dietary guideline is that people could look at others and they could say, He's not keeping God's rules. He is defiled. I keep God's rules. I must not be defiled. But Jesus states it pretty clearly here. Defilement comes from within. In other words, spiritual dirt doesn't come from without. It's manufactured in the human heart. We, we've produced rules that are designed to keep us from external defilement. Think back to, for many of you, you, you probably grew up with rules against drinking and dancing and card playing. You couldn't play cards because they were from the devil, right? That's, I mean, how many of you ever heard that? It, it, we make those kind of sweeping rules about what kind of movies we watch based on, on rating, not based on content. Again, all in an effort to avoid external defilement. Certain types of, of people are, design, are designated as defiling, and we want to protect ourselves from, from contact with them. And all of these things, they probably started out as just good common sense guidelines, didn't they? But the problem is, is that we slowly and subtly twist the truth, and we come to believe something heretical. That defilement is external, not internal. And that's a dangerous twist of the truth here. It, it has the same effect as if someone changes the street sign. It, it ultimately, it takes us somewhere where we don't want to go. And that day, the issue was food. And the Pharisees had gone beyond what was required. A big issue that, that has been in the church in the last 20 years is, is for some people, is clothing. When we lay out expectations for how people should dress for church and justify it by saying that they should show respect for God, you're adding to the law. You're putting something on people that God does not require. I grew up uh, with, with a grandmother that said, you should wear your Sunday best. And so when I went to visit my grandparents, I, my mother always made sure I had my Sunday best for that church. There's nothing wrong with that. But I love this conversation that Bob Russell and Kyle Eidelman had. Some of you will remember Bob Russell as the longtime minister of Southeast Christian, the founder of that church. Kyle Eidelman is the current minister there. When, when Kyle came on staff, Bob had a long-standing policy that if you were going to preach at Southeast Christian, you were going to wear a tie. No discussion, no questions asked. If you were going to preach, you were going to wear a tie because you should show respect for the position. You should show respect for, for God in that way. You were going to wear your Sunday best. And so one Sunday, Kyle was scheduled to preach. And, and he came up to Bob during the week and he said, he said, Bob, I know you've got this rule. I know you've got this rule about, about wearing a tie. And, and I understand it and I can appreciate it. But I'm going to ask that you not make me wear a tie. And Bob said, well, well how come? Why, why, are you, why are you pushing back on this? And, and Kyle said, 
you know, look, it's, it's just really, it's not my style. It is the people that I'm trying to connect with aren't connecting with people with, with a person in a tie. It's, 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 it's just going to be more effective for me to not wear a tie than it is to wear a tie. And Bob said, well, no, 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 you're going to wear a tie. And, and Kyle said, well, well, what's your basis for, for this rule? Kyle asked that question, and Bob said, well, well, let me ask you a question. If you were going to meet the president of the United States, would you wear a tie? And Kyle said, not if the president was my dad. Think about that. I mean, that, what, a, what a great thought. You know, look, we come before God as our father. I'm not certain that God really cares what we wear. I think God would, I think, I think there's an expectation of modesty, but, but even that is a tradition. I'm not certain that God really cares. You know, I'm going to wear a tie from time to time. More often than not, I'm not going to wear a tie. You know why? Because I don't like ties. You know why I wear a tie? Because I know you all do. So I will wear one occasionally because I know you like one. I'll also tell you this, if I wear a tie, it's probably because I haven't spent as much time in the message prepping for the message as I want. And so if it's going to be a bad message, you're going to say, at least I look good, right? The issue where defil- of, def- of where defilement comes from goes even further. In, in previous passages in the Gospels, we see, we see that Jesus is severely criticized for associating with people that the Pharisees saw as defiled. By their logic, Jesus was therefore defiled. And, and we see this flawed logic even today when we isolate ourselves from people who are different than us. Reggie McNeil, again, he says it best this way. He says, many congregations and church leaders faced with the collapse of the church culture have responded by adopting a refuge mentality. This is the perspective reflected in the approach to ministry that withdraws from the culture, that builds the walls higher and thicker, that tries to hang, out, hang on to what we've got, that hunkers down to wait for the storm to blow over in, in culture, for, to wait for things to go back to normal so that the church can resume its previous place. And those who, he says this, those who hold this perspective frequently lament the loss of cultural support for church values and adopt an us-versus-them dichotomous view of the world. Those with a refuge mentality view the world outside the church as the enemy. And their answer is to live inside the bubble in a Christian subculture complete with its own entertainment industry. I want to tell you that if we think the people outside of the church are the enemy, we are wrong. They are not our enemy. There is an enemy. There is an enemy, but it's not the people outside of the church. Those people outside of the church are our future family members. And that's the view we've got to adopt of them. But, but it makes sense, though, that we want to isolate ourselves sometimes. As, as parents, we, we do this. We want to protect our children from harm and, and, and teach them to make good choices. We want, to, we want them to choose good friends and, and ultimately good spouses. But we need to remember this, that they carry defilement right here in their heart. Everywhere they go. Just like their parents. Just like their grandparents. I don't want my kids to grow up isolated and fearful of the world around them. The Bible doesn't say the fear of the culture, the fear of culture is the beginning of wisdom. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so two great dangers occur when we, we equate isolation with purity. One, we fool ourselves into thinking that we are safe somehow from defilement. And two, we both we lose both the awareness and the credibility with our culture, the ones that we're supposed to be transforming. Finally, the last thing, and we'll wrap this up is that tradition can stifle effective ministry. Look at verses 17 through 20. 
says this, After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. That's a nice way of Jesus saying, are you that thick-headed? He said, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? So he's going to give us a little biology lesson here. He says, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Jesus nailed the Pharisees on two of their biggest traditions. The first was the hand-washing deal, which seems relatively harmless, but it actually contradicts the truth of Scripture regarding defilement. Second was the food laws of the Old Testament. Jesus declared that they were henceforth superseded. So now you can go out after church and you can eat anything you like. You can eat pork, you can eat shrimp, you can eat ostrich. Uh, We're going to have spaghetti in a few minutes. You can have that, right? All of these food laws, all of these dietary restrictions, they've, they, they've been done away with. But if you look at this and you begin to apply it, it makes sense that, that some of our own traditions ha- have become fossilized. Some, in fact, may actually contradict Scripture. To quote Warren Wiersbe again, he says, Each new generation must engage in similar conflict, for human nature is prone to hold on to worn-out man-made traditions and ignore or disobey the living word. It is true that some traditions are helpful as reminders of our rich heritage or as a cement to bind generations. But we must constantly beware lest tradition takes the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in light of God's word. Not in light of culture, in light of God's word. And be courageous enough to make changes. You know, I want to tell you that our church, we have some wonderful traditions. Some that we need to hang on to. But we need to recognize the difference between tradition and doctrine and not draw our line in the sand on tradition. The Pharisees had made their tradition so rigid, so inaccessible to the average person that they were keeping people away from God. And the same potential exists for Latter-day Saints like us. The traditions of the church culture can become barriers and keep people away from God. And when they do, We've just been on one more adventure and missing the point. What's our mission? What's our mission? I ask you this every week, right? There we go. Leading people to love and follow Jesus. That's our mission. Our mission is not to hang on to traditions. It's not even to create new traditions. It's to lead people to love and follow Jesus. Are traditions bad? No, they're not bad. Are traditions evil? No, they're not evil. Can traditions keep us from God yeah like everything else they can so here's my challenge for you today as you think about things that we do as a church as you think about things that you do just as an individual and as a family evaluate your traditions in light of scripture in light of scripture and if it matches up with scripture if it enhances scripture great but if it actually contradicts scripture or if it's not anywhere found in Scripture, if it contradicts Scripture, here's what you, you got to change it. All right, let's just be plain out about that. If it contradicts Scripture, you got to get rid of it. But if it's not found in Scripture, if it's, you know, take it or leave it one way or the other, can I just encourage you to, to not make that the hill that we're going to die on? That that's not the, the battle that we're going to wage? Look, there's an important battle going on. There are people out there who are not the enemy that need to know Jesus, and it's our job to lead people to love and follow Him, to make disciples of Christ. 
And if our traditions help us do that, then great. And if they don't help us do that, then let's change. Amen? Let me pray for us.